Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Welcome, everyone. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Dolls of Our Lives. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Well, still Allison, we've gathered here today to talk about the Mary Ellen movie, which title I've, ar- I've already forgotten. Not a judgment, just a statement. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm here to talk about Mary Ellen, 1955, Extraordinary Christmas. Not to be confused with Extraordinary, which Mary Ellen tells oh my us God. is very Important. different from Extraordinary. This movie was free. Was it worth it? I, I don't want to comment on that. but The best was, things in life are free. I think that's a great way um, of putting it. I would say that this movie was ordinary. It happened. It was 50 minutes of my life or so. Can't wait to discuss with you. We spend 40 ma- 48 minutes with... Mary Ellen, as she discovers, quote, that the best gift is thinking of others first and is determined to make the holiday special for those who need it most. I expected an O. Henry situation or something like that that we've encountered with the likes of Samantha, Rebecca Rubin, and her different stories before. Not the case. They said, we're not going to do linear. We're not going to do consistent You're going to be forced to rewatch this movie over and over as a kind of mental mind game. This movie was a collage. It definitely was a mind game where I asked myself, was that character in the books? Did I miss? Did I miss them? Also, a character that's not a bully becomes one. A parent who we called first to seriously look at his choices (laughs) emerged in this movie as, you know, a feminist. A feminist question mark. So there was a lot of glow ups. There was a lot of glow downs. I don't know the extent to which Val was involved, but I would love to know her feedback. There was a lot happening. Speaking of movies, I want someone to explain to me why as a collective on TikTok, we're all watching one movie per week, like bit by bit, day by day. Like for a lot of us, it was recently Aaron Brockovich. For a period, it was the intern. This really started for me with The Devil Wears Prada. It's like, you're going to get this movie two and a half minutes at a time, and people are going to beg for like the next part. And these like cultural comptrollers are not going to release it, and we're all going to go through it together. Okay, so you have brought this up to me before, and I think like <laughs> the help was in the mix for you yes. at one point. Yes. I have never seen a single one of these TikToks. Like, so you're telling me that you could watch Aaron Brockovich on TikTok two minutes at a time, and I missed that? Not that you can, that I have now twice, because I've been through two rounds wow. of Aaron Brockovich. Like, like you get a vaccine and then you get a booster. For me, that's Aaron Brockovich twice. I do feel as though I have now seen all of young Sheldon and like major portions of the what? Big Bang Theory. I did not know like what the circumstances were that, you know, created the ability for the team on Big Bang to get a Nobel Prize. But now I've seen those scenes oh over God. and over. I know it all. And I'm starting to get to a place where I'm flipping back and forth between 
young Sheldon and Big Bang Theory. It's the same character, of course. And I just live in that universe now. Okay, that's a shock to me too. I've never seen that. I've never seen that in life. I'm getting, and I don't know if this is like a straight queer divide. I'm getting like every Taylor Swift concert. Like oh, yes. I'm, I yes. feel like I've been to the concert at this point. I'm seeing everything. I love it. I love being with different people watching it because then you kind of get in their business and you hear like woman speaking to her boyfriend and or her family members. And it's, I'm enjoying that. Taylor sounds great live. Feel like I've been there. Just want to compliment her. Sounds good despite her breakup. But I have not seen any of that. I'm at the concerts usually on Saturday nights, not on other Mm -hmm. nights of the week. It's like, you know, we've heard about all the different cities. There was the situation with her hair in Florida. The humidity was working wonders. There was the injury in Las Vegas. It's like we've all been on the roller coaster. I occasionally get on Girls Talk where I'm rewatching parts of Girls and then I get on Sopranos and it's like, Someone is basically pulling levers and saying, like, now a key change. Now we're going to go over here. Now we're going to go over here. I get almost no regular people on my feed anymore. I'm just watching the most chaotic segments of reruns of all time. I mean, it doesn't sound bad. No. I mean, there's probably worse things. I'm getting, like, a lot of DIY stuff because I've taken a turn towards that. I'm seeing a lot of Taylor Swift stuff. A lot of, like, women saying, like, here's, like, cool summer looks that you should look into. And it's like, they don't know me enough to know like this is probably not going to happen. But that's kind of what I'm seeing. People telling me I should quit my job and be a girl boss. Like that's hard trying to get rid of that. But, you know, that's kind of what I'm taking in. I also started watching because I like to get onto a show. Like a show will be really hot and then I wait a good decade and then I get onto that show. So I just started watching Boardwalk Empire. Oh. While I was unpacking boxes, I went on a real journey with myself where, have you seen this show? You know, I haven't because I'm too close to Prohibition. It's too close for me. I, In what way? I fought really hard for there to be a serious centennial reexamination and commemoration okay. of the 18th Amendment, only Got to it. discover that most people are happy that that has been repealed. So that's just been like kind of a surprise for me. You know, I think we all have different things to contribute to that discourse. Like, I think prohibition is complex and we overlooked it. I think it's a very big mistake because it helps us to better understand the expansion of the federal government. That didn't have the same traction as we can release this kitty cat wearing a sash and celebrate the 19th Amendment and the expansion of suffrage. (laughs) Like those arguments I didn't really win. I basically have rewatched major portions of Sopranos via social media at this point. I'm very happy about that. That's what I enjoy. That that's always a perennial classic. I do think when you're ready to receive it, you would probably like this show. I've only seen like I've seen four or five episodes. And then, as I told you, I did watch there's a new Judy Bloom documentary that just came out called Judy Bloom Forever. And it's on Amazon Prime and she participates in it. And it's so good. Like I cried multiple times watching it as I'm unpacking boxes and Oh my God. Like, it's just, they go, they kind of like go through her greatest hits, you know, and she talks about different things and about book censorship. And it's just surreal to me seeing like how much that history has made a return to our times. But we just did our Patreon episode on Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. So she was very much on my mind. Yeah. I hope that people check that out and give us their feedback. That was a really fun one to record and to talk about people with. 
we're going into like different directions for the next few months. We're reading Lavender House, which is a book that just came out that I think people will really enjoy. And then we're going into Shine Brightly as part of our preparation for the Melody books. But I think that people will really have a lot of fun going back and looking at Judy Bloom and then just sort of our discussion around all of that. I have been bombarded with ads for the movie for months. And so like, I'm very Mm -hmm. happy for Rachel McAdams. I hope everyone in it like does well, but yeah, I I really appreciated rereading the book and I'm so curious how the film does into the summer. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to see about that. I mean, something that's interesting about the documentary for anyone interested is that she donated all of her papers to Yale and the filmmakers had Mm. access to it. And they actually went through her letters and found some of her longest term correspondence. And they found these girls grown up as women and they had them read their childhood letters and have Judy read Judy's responses. And oftentimes like Judy is still in these people's lives. And it's kind of an interesting moment to think about like, what is the author's responsibility to particularly young children who read your books? And she says at one point that she had to go to a therapist to say like, I don't know what to do with like kids sharing like very, you know, traumatic or personal things that they're facing. Like, I don't know how to help them because I'm not a therapist. And that's, it gets really interesting. But in one case, there's a really beautiful scene. This doesn't ruin anything where this girl who wrote to her from the time she was a child goes to Bryn Mawr and she's graduating and she's having some kind of difference with her parents and they're not going to be at her graduation. She writes to Judy Bloom and is like, I'm graduating from college. No one's going to be at my graduation. Would you come as my guest? And Judy and her husband go to her college graduation. They've never met her before. And it's like, again, I'm getting all like emotional. It was so beautiful. And she was like, everyone there was like, oh my God, why is Judy Mm. Bloom here? Like she related to one of the graduates and she was there because she like called herself my friend. It's just like, oh God. It's so like, imagine having that kind of impact on someone's life. It's just so beautiful. So if you're a fan at all, I think you would really appreciate it. I do feel like Judy Bloom is in a small, like very special Hall of Fame along with Valerie Tripp and Valerie Tripp once again you know like her like the gold that she spins and weaves out into the world it gave us Mary Ellen and it gave us this film Mm -hmm. it sure did and you know like the things that you love when you're perhaps in your teens or your adolescence and you're kind of vulnerable and you look back at it and you're like does this hold up I mean I think we kind of have to imagine as we get into this film like does this hold up? What were they trying to do? What did they do to me personally? Am I traumatized? Can I come out of it? I mean, in a sense, interestingly, there's no mention of vaccination really in this film, which is a choice. I did just get vaccinated again before oh, yeah. we sat down for this recording. So in a sense, like I'm not giving her credit for that. I will give Val Tripp credit for that. Um, so thank you, Val. Uh, but yeah, I mean, are you prepared to get into this? I am. I am. I want to give folks a little bit of background and just to say people who've been reading along with us with the Be Forever characters, we're finding so many differences based on version, when your book was printed, whether you had abridged, whether you listened to audio. This film pulls different elements from various Mary Ellen books and pulls them occasionally out of order. So I'm going to read the actual longer summary that comes to us from Amazon Prime. It's Christmas 1955 in Daytona Beach, Florida, and middle child Mary Ellen longs to stand out amidst the hustle and bustle of her big family. 
When Benji, a family friend afflicted with polio, comes to stay with them, Mary Ellen is intent on making the holiday special. After her plans for a big celebration fall through, she discovers the best gifts are often simple, meaningful gestures of friendship. Is that what she discovers? Who is Benji? Let's go there oh first. Oh my God. Who, we get he's two names. He's a boy that we found on a mill carton and he came from central casting and stands in this film as a caricature. I don't know. Who is this man, this boy, this child? So maybe a useful way to get into this, because we'll talk about like the various plot points and major ones are missing from book to, you know, 48 minute adaptation. I want to talk about Dr. Valerie Weiss, who is the director of this film. She comes straight out of Harvard, just like Elle Woods, where she earned a PhD in biological chemistry and molecular pharmacology. And she took that and said, you know, like, hold my test tube. I'm going to Mary Ellen. I'm jumping right into it. She is a, quote, award-winning filmmaker and scientist. She's worked on Suits, Outer Banks, Chicago PD. She mostly does television. She has made products that have 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. She, when you Google her, she is known for this. For this? And I just, this I film? Yes, I want you to think on that because she's done a lot of different projects. Um, this is what her Wait a bio. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Read her bio. <laughs> her work has I been can. called daringly light for the way it embraces controversial topics in enchanting ways and spans the genres of action, thriller, drama, science fiction, and comedy. And she does have a very extensive resume. I want to say I think all the kid actors in this are very good, including the boy who says forgotten as opposed to forgotten. I, I just want to shout him out. This is very interesting to me because given her background, any inkling of science that kind of makes Mary Ellen a distinctive character, first the public health campaign and subsequently the interest in rocket engineering is gone in this film. Yeah. So her personal interest in STEM. Well, let's back up for a second. Yeah. I want to take us back to a different film that American Girl made in the past couple of years that you brought into my life. And I'll never forget that. And it's the TikTok they made in response to Jan 6 when people were like, Mary Ellen was at January 6th. And she's like, hi, I heard everyone was talking about me. And she introduces herself again and says, like, I love science. I'm a girl boss. And she's pro-vaccination. Why is that reintroduction TikTok more progressive than the version of Mary Ellen that exists in this movie from 2016? Because we get no reference to vaccination. What reference did we get again? You said before off air. So in this film, there is a conversation between Mary Ellen and her mother about Dr. Jonas Salk. And Mary Ellen's mother is very quick to point out that he chose not to patent the vaccine. That's the way it's framed. And that he didn't want to get rich. He just wanted people to get better. But polio is regarded as a thing of the past for Mary Ellen and her family. And you are given the impression in this film because a hospital with children hospitalized after getting polio is a big part of the story. But you're getting a sense that like the worst has passed and now we're entering a kind of rehabilitation and recovery phase with polio. That was my sense of the story. There's no discussion in the film as to whether they've been vaccinated or what it would mean to get a vaccine. Yeah, and what's interesting in that framing and that choice is that in the books, it seems to me that, 
you know, this experience is not in the distant past for Mary Ellen. And in fact, she has like a sense memory of it. She can, there's a, a really moving part in the second book where she recalls the pain of polio and not wanting anyone else to feel it, which inspires her to then do this fundraiser to encourage people to get vaccinated and to fund the vaccination of people who can't afford it. And that's really moving. And, and that I think works as a, a motivation. It's a good plot. And that is completely disregarded, as you say, in this movie. And instead we have an opening where we're in the department store with her and the mom and all of the siblings are there, which also doesn't happen in the books. And she's wearing jeans in the department store. And this is like the first alarm bell that goes off <laughs> in my head where I'm like, wait a second, this is not like the books. That was a wink to lovers of the Felicity film when Felicity is pulling on the britches and she says, it's not what you think. That was I still a shout think out. about that. Because <laughs> we don't know what anyone was thinking. No. There, there is a moment where Mary Ellen is defending herself. And I want to zoom in very briefly on how this film starts because we're immediately situated in 1955. We're told that we're in Florida. We're told that we're looking inside this department store where Mary Ellen and the Larkins, all except dad, are shopping because they're shopping for dad. And the thing that really struck me based on conversations we've had before, and I didn't notice it right, right away. We see Mary Ellen and she's kind of being camp. She's in the display window and she's playing with the fake snow. And we have this whole conversation about pants. There is a crowd of people of all different diverse backgrounds who are looking inside the department store and they're all standing amongst each other. And I think this is where taking that zoom out approach for just a second we were critical of the fact that school segregation and desegregation wasn't on the main pages of the Mary Ellen books. To show a department store in 1955 as this post-racial utopia is, I think, one of the most bizarre choices you could Insane. possibly make. And again, like this is a 48-minute film for children. So many civil rights moments, hugely important moments come around department stores and they're situated with people being denied access, people not being able to sit at lunch counters at places like Woolworths. They happen in public restrooms. We have all these people dressed beautifully, laughing at Mary Ellen, playing with snow. And that kind of like told me where we were headed. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it, what's really weird about that situation too is that the scene is introduced as like, this is a moment where Mary Ellen is like sort of rebellious and she's running around the store wearing jeans that she's thrown on. And her mom comes to her and basically is like, jeans are for when you're at play, when we're at home. It's not for when we're out at a department store. It's not for school. So it's kind of this moment where the mom's like, you need to learn like self-regulation and like so sort of societal <laughs> norms here. Like no jeans. Again, my nightmare. But it's also like one, being a tomboy is not part of Mary Ellen's character or personality such that we learned about it in the books. I may have missed that, but to me, she really wanted in the department store a poodle skirt, which is about like, you know, being part of a fad. I don't know. And it's more feminine, which is fine. But like, I, did I miss something? She loves her sister's clothing. I think that was in the American Girl handbook of like quick ways to convey that someone is like quirky, spunky, or one of the other American Girl moments. We have two things that happen. She gets told explicitly, pants are for home and for play, meaning you can dress this way privately, but people aren't supposed to see it. She then is told to get a skirt and she grabs a hula skirt straight out of the oh Molly universe. 
And her mother then says to her, the rules are the rules. And it's actually a really interesting moment about sort of like whiteness and propriety. Yes. Because her mother is saying like, you know, that's not what I meant when I said a skirt. You know, I meant your red kind of boxy skirt that's befitting the femininity I want for you. And if that sounds like kind of an overreach, we've talked about how with like Molly kind of getting to play hula, you would think that by 2016, there'd be conversations of like, oh, let's not recreate that again. This is invented right. for the film. It's not part of her her canon yes. story. And that was really striking to me where I'm like, my God, it's almost like in the same way that we said of the books, like how did Val Tripp not learn anything from the Felicity book she wrote in the 80s about depicting race and racial difference and racism? And again, it's like they they made this choice in 2016 with the hula skirt. And also it's like clearly emphasizing self-regulation and whiteness and propriety in a space where you're also simultaneously want us to believe that that's unnecessary because we're in this like racial utopia where segregation doesn't exist. Again, I know this is we're like reading a lot into a 48 year minute film, but it's like welcome to our show. Like <laughs> yeah. this is. It just felt really weird to me and completely unnecessary because by 2016, we should have some heroes on staff who have been in the trenches with us, who have grew up like us with Felicity and probably internally were like, that feels weird. I'm going to make sure that I handle that differently now that I'm behind the camera or whatever. And that seemingly didn't happen here. And if you haven't seen that scene there is kind of like a whole play moment where she's antagonizing mom. And I do think that Mary Ellen and her mother's relationship is the heart of the film, which is also different from the books. I don't think that's the primary relationship we care about across the two books. The stories give us Mary Ellen as a friend, a student, a granddaughter, all these roles. This is really about her and mom kind of coming into an understanding of each other. And she and mom have an interesting conversation in the car upon leaving the store where they learn that friend Benji, who's been invented, is coming because his family, quote, couldn't afford a hotel and the operation. Benny has uh, Benji, sorry, has braces and he requires additional care in his recuperation from polio. Mary Ellen picks up that having polio makes you different. And she says, just because I had polio, I'm not like everyone else. And her mother kind of spins this and says, like, you were always extraordinary. You were always different. And it feels like another moment where a real conversation about Mary Ellen's living in her body, we kind of move past it. Yeah, it's yet another moment where a parent could have actually dropped down and had a sort of meaningful conversation with Mary Ellen about what going through this like extremely serious illness that has left her with some measure of disability has would mean for her and her emotional life. And instead it's like, no, like instead of being like, we're all the same or I don't see difference, it's like, no, you've always been extraordinary, which is in its own way comes off kind of patronizing or cloying or just sort of avoidant. Like, I don't actually want to deal with what this is really about for you. So we're just moving on. We also learn that this family is in a very tight time crunch because they're heading back home. Mom and dad have to skip out for 45 minutes, 45. And we learn that in that time, like this is when older sister Joan (laughs) is trying to get out on a date. Like she's trying to hop out. Other parts in this family, other members, I should say, are trying to like go off to the beach. In lieu of the plot line where mom's wartime work is introduced and mom's friends who she supervised in the plant back when she helped to make 
I think she was like part of the overall operations of creating airplanes. We don't know exactly what she did, but she was a supervisor. All that goes away and we're getting Benji and his mother. This is very like kit movie, like boarding house situation. She's gone for 45 minutes. The brownies are burned. Several outfits are ruined completely. Mary Ellen has, let's just say it, like she ruins the red door. She ruins the red door. And I said to you off air, it's like short of Martin Luther, like the painting or like in like embellishment of a door decoration has never been invested with so much chaos and or meaning. And what's really strange is like they keep the red door fiasco and the burning burning of the brownies. But by making Benji the reason why the parents leave instead of picking up the friends, it changes the meaning of why she does it in the first place in a way that I think is not as good as the book or not as meaningful, where in the book, it's because she wants her mom's wartime friends to see that she is still special, that her mom is still special, even though she is a stay-at-home mom, which is like sort of a subtext of the books is like, what kind of labor is that? It's not a job that you have at a factory, but like, what is it? And this instance, it kind of just reduces it to like Mary Ellen wanting attention. And there's a lot of like calling her out by friend slash bully Davy of like, you just want attention <laughs> and that's why you did X, Y, Z. And it kind of reduces Mary Ellen or like oversimplifies her as a thinking person who, you know, does things because there's meaning behind it. That's not just like, you know, wanting attention. I don't know. She's extremely rash in the film because a lot is going on and she runs to the garage and opens the can of paint. To your point, there was something very special about wanting all of the friends to come into the neighborhood and to see that their their friend, Mary Ellen's mother, has a beautiful house. This time we have a person who's been in and out of hospitals and different like really stressful moments. We learned that his father has passed away. His mother has really been struggling. And she basically says like, let's spike that cortisol and paint the front door red. Like let's add to everyone's stress. We also, as you say, we have the character Davy, who goes from being like a fairly neutral actor in the books to being quite mean, quite the bully. And they've taken out a plot that I thought was pretty compelling for young people to read, which was in the books, Mary Ellen gets the message from friends and other people in her life that her close friendship with a boy is no longer acceptable. And she ends up kind of bucking against that. In this, she grows apart from her friend because he's mean. Yes. And I wondered if that's because, or this kind of recharacterization of him is because Wayne isn't in the book. So like Wayne kind of stands in as like, I don't know, marginally like cruel around the schoolyard. And he's like taking Davy under his wing. And there's sort of like this presented like, oh, now that you're in fourth grade, there's going to be this gender separation and Davy's going to become more like Wayne and you're not going to be friends anymore, which also is never developed or goes anywhere. But in the movie, it's like Wayne's gone. So then Davy becomes like this monstrous, like frenemy bully who is terrible to people who have polio in particular. There's something too about, you know, he is accepting of his friend, Mary Ellen or Ellie, because she appears to be living without any consequences of polio. And again, like there are consequences for her, but the way that she is framed as a character, it's not part of her everyday experience. And they're talking about people who are in the hospital and they choose to use what's now widely considered unacceptable language about those people, right? And kind of the experiences that they're going through. 
We get the sense that he is extremely superficial. He wants Dick Tracy. He wants marbles, a new bat. He wants blue flippers. He wants all this stuff. And Mary Ellen comes across as kind of after school special saying like, what if we didn't just use our money or try to get things at Christmas time for ourselves, but got things for children in the hospital. So they kind of get set up as foils for each other. And mom gets over the painting of the door very fast. And she's like, Mary Ellen, stop worrying about yourself and you can do amazing things. It's like, I'm not sure what we're doing here. This is a movie in search of a plot. <laughs> I'm I'm over 25 hours, 24 hours out of this viewing experience. And I still can't make heads or tails of this experience. I want to say, first of all, Mary McCormick, if you're out there and you're listening, I hope you're okay financially. Like you did play mom in this movie, wondering what went into that decision. I think she did her absolute letter best and she does a great job, but she's not given, like I kept imagining, like what if the director was there and she goes up to the director and she's like, okay, I'm playing mom. What is my motivation in this scene where I'm about to give Mary Ellen a little bit of a lecture while I'm making dinner about the importance to listening? Because there is, it does, it is a callback in a way to the books because there's multiple things that happen where Mary Ellen like imagines what would be good for people and does it. And she never asks them if that's what they would want. So I think it's picking up on that thread. And the mom's like, but what if you actually listened? And there is literally a moment where Mary Ellen, the actress who plays her is amazing and is like, huh, what if I listen to everyone <laughs> instead of projecting? And the mom's like, yes, and gives an encouraging nod. But then it's like, it kind of goes off the rails because who is she listening to? Grandpa and grandma about whether they want her to come to their house in Georgia. That's still in this movie. Whether or not she should use the money that she's given to go visit them or to do something for the children at the hospital or do something for Benji. Davies somehow in this like the acting is great I really want to say that and a lot of you you may actually know the lead actor who plays Mary Ellen she is not actually really known for this role she is actually pretty well known for a lifetime movie called a deadly adoption um, from her IMDb she was in the enviable role of Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig's kidnapped daughters Um, she also was in the film Blended. She's only 15 now. So she really was like the exact age. I thank you to remember to tell us all her most important IMDb credit. I can't believe you didn't even mention this. Oh no, what is it? She plays Dolly Parton in Coat of Many Colors and the other movie that was on the major channels a couple years ago. There is a video on her IMDb page. There's a photo of her hugging Dolly Parton. I saw this and I was like, I mean, I've never been more jealous in my life. And she does an excellent job in those movies. The movies are kind of off the rails too, in the best possible way. But I mean, this is a person who has been invested in playing like, she was trusted with telling some pretty significant stories. That's what I want to say. Also want to say that her mom is played Deb on One Tree Hill. So she does come from a pretty elite acting family. Her name is Olivia Allen Lind, but she goes by Allie. That's what I saw on social media. The wig work, uh, shout out to our listener, Emily, who always comments on the wig work. The wig work is actually pretty good in this. 
Of note, also, she worked with the Lollipop Theater Network, so she actually worked to increase advocacy and awareness of children who are living with life-threatening illness, and I think that is obviously super awesome. Um, She is, of course, like known for this, but she has a really impressive resume. I do think part of what is happening with this short, you know, feature, which is quite different from the Kit Kittredge movie, that was aspiring to be theater worthy, right? Like not appointment TV, theater worthy. This was made as part of a kind of trio of a film featuring this character, a film featuring Melody, and then a film featuring Ivy and Julie. This is for people in the know who want to rehash like greatest Mary Ellen hits. And if you're asking yourself like, okay, like maybe I didn't need to see the burning of the brownies. Too bad. That's what you're getting. You're getting that. And I I think that you're right that like there's no possible way. Like I watched this with Anna who has not read the books. And I think she was struggling to make heads or tails of the plot because you're not really, there's not a lot of like context. You're not given a lot of intel on what's happening or why or where we land with a lot of these mini plot lines, like going to grandpa and grandma's in Georgia. Um, There is no, we don't go to school. The Karens aren't in this movie. No. Her Italian friend is not in this movie. There's a lot of people who get cut. Um, Davey's still in here as a bully. The dad of it all we need to discuss, but it is hard to follow. I do think it is fascinating that vaccination was completely dropped. And I wonder why that was, because of course, you know, a lot of the, I think putting this book out in 2015, there must've been some intention to talk about like the miracle or like the value of vaccination as something that like completely upended polio as a, you know, disability or an illness that affected mainly children. Okay, grab the corkboard. Director of this film, yep. Dr. Valerie okay. Weiss. Okay, bullet point one. She has like a hardcore background in STEM. Number two, they completely invent a character named Benji. Okay, what's weird about that? The character, or sorry, the actor who plays this character is Samuel Faraci. Sounds an awful lot to me like Dr. Fauci. Now we oh, have wow. a joke that directly is portending what's going to come in real life post-2016. This is the joke, air quotes. Knock, knock. Who's there? Radio. Radio who? Radio or not, here I come. Is that not about this podcast and COVID? <laughs> Uh, sure. Yes. Um, it does seem like it is forecasting a lot, especially having the main actress play Dolly Parton in the same year, very close by. And of course, like who funds one of the major vaccines for COVID in its early years. So it's like, you know, in some ways that history writes itself. Like the red door is screaming at us. Honestly, this, (laughs) this film, like it did, I am calling it a film. It did make me think about a lot because at its core, If I was teaching an intro to philosophy class, this film is asking a question, which is when you do good for others and it inspires a good feeling in yourself, is that a selfish act, right? Like some Mm -hmm. people might bring that back to Plato or other Greek philosophers. This is famously a debate that Phoebe has with Joey on Friends. I like the way that it plays out in this film because Mary Ellen is genuinely trying to do what she thinks is best for others and gets the feedback that she should ask and she has to work through all of that. I liked this. I do feel like the red door, the radio joke, like everything was pointing us in a direction 
And when this came out, we just couldn't see it. Like we weren't ready to see what Connie, Benji and others had for us. I'm sure that's true. And I think, you know, we were talking off here, but it's interesting to kind of place this in the pantheon of other pop culture things that were produced for kids about health issues, public health issues, and how this sort of stacks up. Like, what does it actually teach you about? What does it inspire you to do? Is there an explicit or implicit message? When I was growing up, the things I could remember were, you know, obviously Stacy in the Babysitter's Club, as we said off air, like she taught us a heck of a lot about diabetes. Like I really didn't know anyone in my life that I knew of who had diabetes before I read those books. And, you know, did that, did those books successfully raise awareness about diabetes or teach you about it? For me, certainly. I actually read several books. I've talked about this, I think, before about that. And there were certain films that really had a big impact on me. My parents loved the film Lorenzo's Oil with Susan Sarandon, which talked about a parent's advocacy to get a cure for their child. I feel like seeing films like Dr. Patch, right, gave us like some kind of like sense of what it might be like to be going through this. There's these moments, as you mentioned before, where like you think about what are they trying to communicate about children and illness? I do think looking back, one of the more powerful moments is the father, who's apparently like an engineer or teacher of engineering, saying that like the women students tend to be really great and that they ask a lot of questions. And I think that's one of the better, bizarrely, like moments with a lesson in this film, which is like, ask questions, right? Like ask people what they want, but also just ask hard questions about your experience in life. Yeah. But what's interesting about the movie is like, so she's told by the mom, you should really listen to what people want before just projecting, which is great life advice. And she ends up off, off camera. We never see her do this. She imagines that what the kids in the hospital will want is a huge Christmas party. And she's going to throw that. And then off again, we never see this conversation. She talks to these um, patients and learns really listening to them about the things they're dreaming of being able to do, presumably upon their recovery, which is actually really emotional and sad because inherent in that is that some of the kids might not be able to do some of the physical things that they're thinking of. And she takes that and draws them jumping rope, doing all these kind of play activities that kids do and then decides to present those as gifts in lieu of a huge party because she learns that's not what they really want. But what's kind of sad about the movie is like, we never see the kids with polio speak for themselves, apart from Benji kind of talking to her when she's painting the door, like fixing it when everyone else is asleep. But it was kind of like, why don't we have like these kids speak for themselves? Like we as the audience are not being asked to listen to these people. We're being asked to kind of, we're just like hearing secondhand from Mary Ellen. We're also, as you pointed out before, Mary Ellen, as many of these characters do, she's distanced herself from this scenario. A huge point of the first Mary Ellen book is that Mary Ellen, a survivor of polio, learns how to figure skate. And that's a really big deal. That's a realization of a dream that she didn't think was possible because of lingering pains and issues that she has as a consequence of getting polio. When we watch the Kit movie and Kit, whose family has become really economically disadvantaged, she finally gets a moment to write in the newspaper and she's like, all these people are poor. In much the same way, this film is about Mary Ellen advocating for others without ever closing that loop to go back to the fact that 
at least in the the world of the books, she has this amazing moment where she gets to figure skate in a cold location in Georgia with her grandparents and like have snow falling on her as she's dreamed. That's a huge moment of triumph for her because when she was in the situation of the hospital, she didn't think that would be possible. Right. And I think, you know, that would have added so much emotional complexity to something that is very brief, like as a film. And it also would have put in context or given us a window into what it was like to be a child in that time and to genuinely live with the fear of getting polio yourself. That is why Davy doesn't want to go into the hospital room with her. Correct. Like she's looking, she's with him in the hospital at one point, and they're looking through a huge window pane at all the polio patients. And she's like, come on, like we can go like talk to them or whatever. And he's like, no, I don't want to do that because he's so afraid to even be near them. And he uses a word which is, you know, disability slur today. He's so afraid to go there because the fear is so real to him still, which then kind of gives the lie to the whole movie pretending like polio is like far in our distant view because why is he afraid to go into that room if he understands it by getting vaccinated? He is keeping himself from getting polio. Like it doesn't really work. Um, or it would have just been like interesting to be like, why won't you go in there? Have her ask that. Why aren't, why won't you go in there with me and have him be more explicit? The doctor is also a pretty, you know, like worthwhile character in examining. And the doctor goes back and forth with Mary Ellen and they have some moments where he even admits that often they are so concerned about the children's basic like health, safety, and wellness that they don't think about what they might want, right? Like that they have this like terrible balance that they are trying to strike. What did you make of like adults overall in this film? Like we get a lot more of mom. We have this doctor character who's invented. The friends don't appear. Connie is a pretty minor character. Joan is 40 for some reason. Joan is comes off quite old compared to... Um, like how I imagined her in the books. And it's interesting because her plot line too is sort of like floated and then never resolved. <laughs> like at one point she's like, she's constantly reading a book and Mary, um, Mary Ellen is like, oh yeah. Like, you know, I know you both, you just love your books. If you could, you, if you could, you'd probably marry them. And is like, speaking of marriage, like <laughs> you and Jerry, what's up? And it's like, wow, subtle. But you never see her like go through those motions of like, thank God the camper is not part of this. But you know, being at the Alamo and being like, wow, I love being places and traveling and I want more of that before I get married. And instead you have dad weirdly being the feminist of this movie and at dinner. He's also a professor of engineering, it seems. And he's like, yeah, I have a great, you know, female student and Joan, like you're smart enough to go to college. You should think about it. And it's like, okay, like, what do you make of like the rebrand of dad in this movie? I do think that someone had something against Airstreams and said, we are not including a plot line where the dad surprises a mother with like, like domestic labor on wheels. The conversations that are had about parents and working in this film are worth commenting on considering they're from 2016 she asks her mother at one point why she no longer works in the factory, right? Why she's not mm. part of this aerospace industry. Mom, why aren't you doing it anymore? And in here, the mother says, it's just the way things are. I love the job. I wasn't given the choice. And she further explains that women can be teachers, nurses, secretaries, and she's air quotes heard of a woman journalist. She's like, Hard to say what they're working on, but I've heard of Hard such to know. things. Impossible to say. 
here's what, you know, pulling out of this, it made me think of like two separate historical strands. Part of what's happening in this commentary, again, is sort of like the assumptions of whiteness, right? That like as a middle-class white family, that she would not continue to be a wage earner, except in a really, you know, like specific circumstance. Another element of this is it's framed here as the mother not having a choice, when in fact, in the book, she chooses to leave the workforce because she was being compelled to take on the job in a different way. And part of what she really loved was supervising women on the factory line, and that was going to be taken from her, and she quits in solidarity. So it goes from being something where the mom is sort of powerless to being a moment where or sorry, she's presented as powerless, whereas in the books, it was an act of like working class solidarity for her to do that. Yeah, it 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 feels like a total like downgrade in terms of the framing of the choices in her life by like seemingly robbing her of a lot of choices in her life as she comes off disempowered, which makes it then not really land when Mary Ellen says to Joan, mom used to be in charge of it at an airplane factory. Doesn't that mean girls can do anything? And Joan is like, uh like maybe question mark we also learn quote being a mom isn't a job and she says dad has a job and he's still a dad she's basically trying to figure out 20 and 21st century feminist contradictions in like two lines (laughs) yeah zooming out you know again just like very briefly and thinking about that opening scene at the woolworths type store If her community wasn't so insular, and Mary Allen actually comments on sort of like the monotony of the houses in their suburban community, just why she's painting the door red. I kept thinking of how like literally on their block and probably within a few blocks, there were almost certainly Black women who were working as domestics in people's houses, because this is sort of like middle to like upper middle class. And Part of what this moment is showing is her world is really small, right? Mary Ellen is really brave and she cares about people quite a bit, which is why she is interested in helping at the hospital. But we can also have these kinds of comments because her world doesn't include people of any different socioeconomic background or, you know, they have to help to like fundraise for the surgery and things, but there's no awareness that working mothers are actually the default in most communities. Yeah, which I think is a very odd framing. Like, I kind of wonder, like, whose choice was that? The screenwriter? Like, where it's odd that they picked up on that from the books, because I wouldn't have assumed that. They also write in a detail that made me think of you, and they're like, uh, Mary Ellen says, sort of says as a throwaway comment, like, yes, I learned about this in Home Ec. And it's like, <laughs> Would she have been, what? (laughs) Like, that was bizarre. And I I don't know if they did that to frame, like, this O. Henry ending that they have of, like, Davy Davy and Mary Ellen have a fight, and she ends up, the mom engineers their reunion by, like, knowing Davy's in woodworking while Mary Ellen's in home ec, so she has made all these drawings of patients. And she, like, presumably the mom reaches out to Davy and is like, will you build picture frames? And then he does that, frames all the pictures, gives them to the patients and robs Mary Ellen of presumably the joy of like sharing, like giving them herself. (laughs) Like she walks in at the end and she's like, oh, like you made frames and everyone has their drawing up. And I'm just like, this is such a weird ending. Like, what did you make of that? The mother telling Davey to use his carpentry skills. She's like, obviously you're 10 years old. (laughs) You're equipped to take on this task. Yeah. Insane. 
And, you know, like we each kind of interestingly coming at this film from different directions, you know, you have extensive research in bibliotherapy and different ways that people tried to create more interesting and dynamic forms of therapy within hospitals and and places for care. Thinking about what was going on in the field of home economics in this time, there were academics who were really interested in vocational rehabilitation, but also disabled children, children living with lifelong consequences of polio and creating what we would think of as adaptations to life, right? Different ways Mm. um, from what some people might use to put on clothing or perform a household task. And they used a lot of scientific management technology to rethink how people would learn to do something. Again, a huge other opportunity that could have happened with Mary Ellen, probably a missed opportunity, When her sister is teaching her how to figure skate, it's very frustrating for her because it's a moment of awareness that their bodies are working differently. Not that Mm. one is normal and not that one is abnormal, but they are working differently. So she has to learn differently. And that was a core of the home economics movement to make clothing, household tasks, everything more efficient and simple for people so that they didn't have to expend energy on buttoning their pants and they could Mm. focus on things they cared about. So yeah, kind of zooming out, I thought the whole frame thing was strange. I also thought it was kind of very American girl where it was sort of like, well, you're 10 now, so you should have a boyfriend. Yeah, which you know I (laughs) hate when they do that. But it's also like, it was so strange. But I told you off air that I was, this kind of sent me down a rabbit hole and I will share this out of watching March of Dimes promotional movies because A lot of what went into doing public awareness about um, polio and fundraising for March of Dimes in particular for the vaccination, for the experimentation that went into it, and for rehabilitation, which was a field that was hugely influenced by polio, was, you know, these films where they had to show children who had been disabled by polio. So, like, they really exploit, like, the visual of, like, looking at a huge hospital room full of kids in casts with limited mobility and so on. And this, there was a commercial I'll share from 1954, the year Mary Ellen is set with Howard Keel, who was in seven brides for seven brothers. And he's in Dallas in the eighties and he's singing, look for the silver lining, which I'm like, honestly, that is the last thing you want to hear when you're like in bed with polio. Like maybe it would be helpful, but I'm like, can we not have like altered this song choice? But he sings the song and then we go to a montage of like all the things the March of Dimes funds. And it's a lot of what you just described, like the kind of technology to help accommodate um, play or acts of everyday life for kids, including playing with dolls, like braces on your hands that would help you add dexterity to be able to play cards, play with dolls. Like they show like paraffin baths for a, a girl's hands who has arthritis and adults who themselves have been disabled Mm. by polio, who then work as teachers for kids with polio um, and all these different accommodations. And it's really fascinating to watch, but it's interesting that we see none of that in this film. Like we don't see any of that kind of technology. We see Benji in a brace before his surgery, but it seems like they've oversimplified what recovery would look like. And maybe that's to have a happier ending. I'm not sure. I do think it fits overall with the kind of thrust of the film, which is sort of like scattered moments. And then uh, like, you know, like early to mid 2000s ethos of, you know, as you mentioned the quote, I think you can be anything, right? This idea that like Joan kind of thought of a lot of context or details might go to college. The fact that we just accept that Jerry would want a smart, educated wife when 
truthfully, maybe he would not. The the moment I think you can be anything and I got you a pair of pants, I think is like so truly American Ooh. girl and so yeah. fascinatingly fun. There's a an almost like parting line. Maybe someday moms will work. And oh my God. We've sort of joked before about, you know, when American Girl came out with Luciana, which is a complex origin story of how they created that character that's, you know, still largely contested in court. But this idea that like the next like girl boss frontier is outer space. There's so much about Mary Ellen that I want to really love as a character. And I think that like you can spend 48 minutes like far worse than watching this film. I just wish sometimes that when we had these characters with a lot of complex plots, we picked one. Like, I don't think that this needed to be a hospital project and Christmas and the pending engagement and the need to, like, do interior decorating or exterior decorating. What did you make of the grandparents coming to Mary Ellen because of her decision to use the ticket money to, like, finance this fun Christmas? Like, what did you make of that difference between book to screen? Completely unnecessary. Like, <laughs> Why were they here? <laughs> why were they here? They brought her a cooler of snow, which felt like, why did you do that? And also, like, would the snow have stayed cold, like, frozen like that? Like, I don't know. I had a lot of questions about that. But it also was just sort of, like, this girl chose to do a personal sacrifice to benefit benefit the kids in the hospital. And then it's like, surprise, you didn't actually have to sacrifice anything. Your grandparents came to you. And it's just, that's how it felt to me, where it's like, you know, it kind of erased the stakes or it's sort of like a reunion ending. I don't know. Did they need that? I think it was a sort of like echo of what was going on at the time, which is her mother says at one point, why do you think I wanted such a big family? Where she's talking about how she loves the chaos of the five children. And Mm -hmm. you learn through conversations Mary Ellen has with her mother that she got a lot more attention in Mary Ellen's mind because she got her grandparents one-on-one. And the actual visit in the film The reason why she wants to go to Georgia is she wants to know what it's like to be an only child. Mm. In the film, the other siblings besides Joan are like basically completely irrelevant. And that's not me hating on anyone's acting. I genuinely think the acting in this is like very, very good across the board. They just disappear. Like the brother who gets one line about the brownies, he kills it. Like everyone in this is extremely talented, very good. Um, Like... Shailene Woodley, this is not just because like the trajectories are different. Like she's an adult now. The leads in this are still teenagers because it's so recent. To your point, though, everyone kind of gets what they wanted at the end. We do also get some like prediction that Benji will get all of the medical care he needs. I have a hard time getting past this in like the wake of the Obama administration being sort of like, see, before we had, you know, certain kinds of standards for healthcare. We still took care of people. What do you mean? Like that this, like, I do think that there's like totally unintended undertones of like the way that people celebrate GoFundMes where people have to like get their teachers insulin. That's a flaw, not something to celebrate in a country worth trillions of dollars. No, I completely agree. And, you know, I think what's interesting is that in 1954, we were actually having a moment of, uh, the AMA, like they were funding 
uh, Ronald Reagan was like one of his first big spokesman gigs was speaking out against socialized medicine. That was like a huge moment for him in the 50s. So there were people to your point saying like, what about healthcare for everybody? Like after the New Deal, like wanting to extend the role of the federal government to provide, as you say, like we have all this kind of like money and like conspicuous consumption for that expands to a middle class like in the 50s. What about paying for medical care? And it's like, surprise, we're not going to get that. No, I mean, we do get the sort of predicted like people who are raising children are also going to be in the workforce just as they always have been. It would become a much larger percentage of people. You can look up all kinds of like Bureau of Labor statistics. But again, it's like mom is raising her children in a period that is actually extraordinary, that is exceptional. The number of children that she's having in a suburban context, not on a farm. The fact that she doesn't have to wage earners, earn wages, like that is exceptional. Like that's actually what's extraordinary. I love yes. Mary Ellen and her bangs, but like that's not the part that's unusual. Right. And it's like, you know, like kind of like progressive moment. I wish mom would have been like, it was cool to earn some money towards <laughs> my social security benefit when I worked in the factory. My work as a mom doesn't actually count as labor for social security. <laughs> Why is that? And it's like, that's a niche concept, I guess. But it's like, that's a question that I keep thinking about, like, you know, why is it that we have different forms of like welfare or benefit that start in Marilyn's mom's lifetime and will continue to shape it? So it's like you think about Marilyn's mom being an elderly woman and, you know, what is her who's paying for her medical care? Like if, you know, dad didn't get a pension at his university. Do you think that like how does this stack up for you with Rebel Without a Cause? Like I would say Mary Ellen is a rebel with a cause. It's pants, red door, polio advocacy. Like how do those two things stack up against each other? I just not to be a downer, but this <laughs> this character has not been for me, not because of Mary Ellen. It's not personal girl. Don't take it personally, but no, I get mainly that. Mainly because I feel like there was so much opportunity here and it's totally squandered. Like this could have been a really interesting movie that because it's a different format from the books it's you know visual medium we could have seen representation of disabled kids and what their life is like and really centered that and instead it's like they ran away from that as quickly as they could and they totally like don't see race at all val still doesn't see race it's like this just has been really disappointing and frustrating that's my gavel point what about you i feel uh similarly about mary ellen and nenea that i think there's something really remarkable that just works well about easing into the evolution of a character. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we absolutely cherished the Rebecca books, the Kit books, and we mm -hmm. have loved what we've seen out of Claudie so far and right. anticipate nothing but the best. I think there really is something to developing a person and a set of characters around them, right, as kind of extras in their lives. Some, something I really have appreciated about the newer, really strong historical characters is characters like in Rebecca's book, right, where we meet all these people who are leading interesting lives. I think it's very telling that like the most, you know, the part that like really grabs Mary Ellen about her mother is her past, right? Yes. And there's something yes. really like remarkable about that. But like, what is mom doing in the present? If mom could supervise people in an airplane production factory, what is mom capable of now? And it's told as kind of a joke that she supervises the family parties 
And I think that there's something to that, right? Like running a household is an extremely hard job. It requires a ton of expertise of which I have basically none. But I think that that joke was not meant to convey that. It was meant to demean mom. Yeah. And I think like at the end of this, I'm just like really thinking about what's what's ahead for mom. You know, like is she going to end up at a consciousness raising meeting in Florida in 1968 or 69, like after the kids are mostly grown and out of the house? Like, is she going to go back to school herself and, you know, be one of the star students that her husband talks about? Like, what does she go back to work? Does she find her profession, her professional calling when her current job of being a mom is not so labor intensive? Like, I don't know. I would love to know what happens for her, like especially living in the South. I think it's really fascinating to have a family centered in Florida and think about that. But I think for me, it's really hard to dislocate this reading experience right now in 2023 with like everything going on with book banning in Florida now and just thinking about like Mary Ellen's books would never be banned. Right. Because they're not controversial. And that's the point. But to me, that is a sign of their weakness. Like I think about the Claudia books, which I think are that book was phenomenal. I can't wait to get book two. And it's like, you know, that kind of proves it is possible to tell stories for kids that include complexity, that include really tough historical moments and truths. And you respect kids enough to say, like, I think you can handle this and you should know about this because it's still in your world now. And these books are basically just like, hey, don't think about it. Let's all go to the beach. Like, <laughs> you know, don't worry. Or some of us will go to the beach while others will paint the right, front exactly. door red and just kind of like yes. be caught up in their own chaos. I think that general opacity about real events is what opened the door to presuming Mary Ellen could be at something like the January 6th riot at the Capitol, right? I don't think it's actually something about her character. I think it's a lack of other content. You know, a lot of people have been talking about the two, like not one, but two Saturday Night Live sketches that feature American Girl, one of which was about adult collectors that I think was really demeaning toward particularly adult male collectors who are a wonderful part of this community. And the second one, for me, it just wasn't funny. It was a sketch kind of imagining if there was an American Girl movie, of which there are many, but instead of, you know, how it's done here or like with Felicity, imagining it like the forthcoming Barbie movie. And I think where it wasn't funny for me is it was like, a Mad Libs generator of all things that were true and none of the spirit of what makes American Girl worth it. Yeah. I mean, I think there were parts of that second one that I found funny, but I think what was sort of puzzling was that they didn't even like go on the Wikipedia to fact check some of the stories because some of the things they said it was like, it could have been funnier if you actually based it on what really happened in that character's world, I guess. So I think like in some ways, the people who do the best parodies are the people who really love the thing that they're parodying because they really know it. And I have to imagine there has to be one or two writers on their staff who must love American Girl because, as you say, we have like two skits and however many months. But um, I just I don't know. And like I have a sense of humor, right? Like I find a lot of things funny. Like, I think, you know, that's what all funny people say. But, you know, I think part of like two notes (laughs) that just like really struck me the wrong way You know, Kirsten, for example, like losing her best friend to me, so much of what, you know, keeps with me about those books now is how resilient she is and the fact that she is willing to make new friendships. That's so beautiful. And I get that you can make a joke out of it, but they they kind of hodgepodge that with Kit having tuberculosis. It was confusing. And secondly, this idea of Addie 
um, you know, kind of being like cast out or Addie being ostracized in the group and saying she doesn't even know her birthday. What I didn't find funny about it is Addie claiming the end of the war as her birthday, I think is one of the true high notes of any American Girl book. Like that is a master stroke by Connie Porter to say, I'm going to have this girl choose her birthday like other famous black abolitionists did. She's going to do it publicly and she's going to claim a day that matters. And to like, to me, that's why it's not funny. I find a lot of things funny, but I was like that. It doesn't really work for me. I don't know. Like she does know her birthday because she chose it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even think that deeply about it. I just, to me, it's like, if you're going to make something that's character based and you want it to be funny, you have to know like these intrinsic things that when you lampoon them, somebody who really knows it will know what you're doing and they'll be funny. Like this is not in the same world, but uh, Meg Stalter, who is plays like a minor role on the show Hacks, but she has a really incredible Instagram where she invents these niche characters and then does a brief like 45 second video, like inhabiting that character. And it, I don't know, truly, like when I'm having a bad day, I go watch like there's one like L.A. woman like freaking out in her car, like conservative woman angry at Bed Bath Beyond. Like they're very like <laughs> Rest bizarre, in peace. but rest in peace. But it's like, I can't even speak about Moonlight no. Path being discontinued, like truly can't even go there. But there's so No, it's not Bath funny. and Body Works. It's Bed Bath and Beyond. We're oh, okay. Oh, thank you. Yes. I'm okay with that one. But Moonlight Path was discontinued. And I'm, oh, if you're okay. out there and you work Sorry. for that corporation, please write to me about how I should heal from that. But, um, you know, she does these videos. They're very brief, but they're very funny. And there's no like meanness to them, but it's more just like she has captured something intrinsic about that kind of person. And I think that's what I was hoping for from that skit was just sort of like more of an inhabited, like if you know, you know, kind of knowledge of it. And it seemed kind of cursory, like they maybe, and they probably did write it really fast and had to film it fast. So I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I think there's like funnier things to do with it because we've seen people like um, Harry Hill and others do it on Instagram. So I don't know. It wasn't a million people sent it to me. I'm sure they sent it to you and to the show. And, you know, I laughed at some of it, but I kind of am hoping for still like the best SNL skit on American Girl. I'm hoping as an optimist, we just haven't seen it yet. (laughs) So like this film, it made us laugh. It made us cry. It gave us home decorating tips. It made us think about like how to rekindle friendships via the construction of frames made in woodshop class. Wow. We aren't we aren't leaving Mary Ellen. Like I think we are kind of going to orbit around her a little bit more. A lot of people think of June as like Father's Day history book time and mm-hmm. we're interested in that. Like David McCullough like he could call me any day of the week, right? Like I, <laughs> you know, like re- like I say that R. with R. like with like complete respect. <laughs> like I love a lot of popular history books, but we're going to take a look at 19 19- like the world of this, like basically 1940s, 1950s, and think a bit about nostalgia and like different takes on this. And we really want to hear from you. So we want you to call our hotline. We want you to talk about like the ways that this history has lived in your life, whether that's like through the history of something like World War II or the history of the baby boom era. But we want to talk about that in relationship to different histories with yours at the forefront. Yeah. So like some people call it Tom Hanks history. Some people call it Father's Day history is like the books you see on a table at Barnes and Noble in approach of Father's Day, like books dad love to read. You know, it could be World War II, it could be whatever. And we're this is sort of like a new, you know, potentially way for us to think about American Girl and these histories. Like maybe we'll do an episode on 50s nostalgia, but like we want to start with the 40s. So we'd love to hear from you about 
what this has been in your life? Like, how have you entered or approached histories of that era? Like, what were the things that you took on? What does it mean to you? And, you know, we'll keep going from there. I will say we're going to have a break and some new episodes in May because I am going on my delayed honeymoon. So it's because of me being away for two weeks that we will join you again in um, June. Allison, do you want to kind of tell people about our Patreon and what we have going on there? For sure. So we mentioned that we're going to be reading Lavender House as our May feature. In June, we're going to be reading a book about the history of popular music called Shine Brightly. I want to double check that I'm getting that correct. And we're really excited about both of those. We also have a book club. So in mid-May, you can join us for Becoming Human which is by Judith Human, a disability activist. That was a much requested book. We also have all kinds of PowerPoint parties. All of that is listed on our Patreon, which is still just $3 a month. We started it to say like, you know, buy us an iced coffee and then some. This is no cheaper than an iced coffee. So I I don't know what that says about our recession economy, but we are so looking forward to getting ahead to reading Shine Bright and talking all about melodies. So hang with us. We're going to be talking a bit about all this 1940s culture, pop culture, consumerism, looking back, nostalgia, and then moving into the 1950s and 1960s. Yes. And if you're into PowerPoint parties, we're doing one on American Girl theories or fandom drama or like whatever your interest in American Girl. If you have a hot take, a favorite kind of theory about an American Girl character, please come share it with us at that party or hear from others who do. We are going to have a reality TV PowerPoint party. Allison, I think you have a plan to present at that. I'm very excited to see that. And then for our queer listeners, we're having a pride pure PowerPoint party for called on the theme of power pop culture made me gay. So you can come and hear about pop culture things that help people kind of explore their own queerness. You might want to present something about yourself and, you know, just lots going on. And the book we're reading is awesome. It's um, written by the person who did a great profile of SZA in the New York Times a couple months ago. So just like so much fun going on. And as you say, like, so cheap. Like, I can't believe Duncan did that to us. Like, why have they up the prices like this? But we do so appreciate everyone who joins us and who continues to listen to the show. We want to hear from you for our mailbag about 40s um, culture. We'd love to kind of read your question on the show um, and answer it. So please be in touch. And, and thanks as always for listening. Go, 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 go.